Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. of Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. John Calvin begins his institutes with a discussion of wisdom. And he says that true wisdom consists in two things primarily. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of the self. And no man can be considered wise without these. When we consider the knowledge of God, we might see right on the face of it that it can be difficult for a sinful man, such as he is, to attain it. Our sinful eyes are given to misreading the book of nature, and the glory of God declared therein. And our sinful eyes are given to misreading the scriptures. And the revelation of God contained therein. So we can see right on the face of it that the knowledge of God can be difficult. We are much more prone to deceive ourselves, I think, with respect to the knowledge of the self. We normally begin with the assumption that we know ourselves pretty well. And we do, in some ways, have inside information. For after all, you are yourself. And you have information about your own internal workings. But the scriptures warn us that our sinfulness blinds us, not only to the scripture, but even to the reading of our own hearts. The sinful heart is deceitful above all things, and who can know it, says the prophet Jeremiah. It's difficult to attain to a knowledge of the self. 
And there can be little doubt that uh, knowledge of the self would have prevented many errors of many different kinds. You might think of theological errors that uh, betray little knowledge of the self. For example, if a man if a man knows himself, really knows himself, knows his deeds, and knows the heart out of which they arose, who would who would ever, thus knowing himself, ever de- develop a doctrine of justification by our own merits? It would just never happen. Never in a million years. Knowledge of the self would also prevent practical errors. Obviously, our pride, native to all of us, and a besetting sin for almost all of us. Ministers are supposed to excel in both of these areas of knowledge. Both the knowledge of God, is to be apt to teach, and the knowledge of the self. When you read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, he is supposed to be a man of great practical piety. He knows himself. He has an examined life. This brings us to our text today. The living creatures are portrayed not only as having eyes uh, before and behind, but also they are full of eyes within, the text says. But first, remember where we are. We have here a spiritual view of the church more real than what you see around you right now the spiritual reality the ultimate reality God is enthroned as king in the midst of his people and he is being served continually by his people the 24 priest kings representative of all of the people of God And those um, between the throne and those 24 priest kings, there are four living creatures. These are not angels, but men. They sing the song of the redeemed. They are members of the church. And yet, distinguished in some way from the rest of the church, they call the church to worship, as we have seen in our text. They are fewer than the 24 They are closer to the throne. They are portrayed as being full of eyes, both upon the throne and upon the people of God. They have wings that are furnished for labor, but also uh, reverence and fear, and humble creatureliness. And we found that uh, uh, unlike the angelic, Cherubim, they each only have one face and fullness only together. And all of these things put together have uh, led us to conclude that these are the ministers of the church. And we have all along the way been deriving lessons concerning the officers of Christ church and the characteristics that they are supposed to have. We take up two more. Uh, characteristics first the second half of verse 8 and they are full of eyes within as we observe they've already been described as having eyes toward the throne they're full of eyes toward the throne 
And they are full of eyes toward the 24 priest kings. But John observes something else, that they are also fullness of eyes within. Some interpreters, this is a very difficult description because if the eyes are within, how would John see them? Some have thought that perhaps they are on the inside of the wings and thus visible sometimes, but oriented back to the body of the living creature itself, perhaps. Um, But we are told here that they have a fullness of eyes within, that their gaze is not only directed toward the throne and not only directed toward the people of God, but also directed toward the self. A very interesting and a very useful description. And one final one, and then we'll make two uses. They are also portrayed as resting neither day nor night in their proclamation of God's praise. This uh, implies that they are constant in it. That this is their continual employment, their uninterrupted employment. They declare God's attributes to the church and in this way call the others to praise and extol God. From this, uh, we can take away two uses. First of all, let the officers of the church be constant in self-examination. Here the uh, the Living creatures are portrayed as being full of eyes, which speaks of a, of a good perception and a constant gaze upon a thing. They've been full of eyes toward the divine throne, as we said. And you remember when we uh, considered that section, they are constant in the study of the things of God. They are attentive, constantly attentive to the commandments of the king and when they are portrayed as being full of eyes in this regard it is supposed that they have a good and keen perception with respect to these things they are full of eyes toward their charges applying the commandments of the king to them they are vigilant in looking after their condition. And when they are said to be full of eyes, they are supposed to be, are supposed to have good perception concerning the flock. And finally, they are portrayed as being full of eyes within. They not only apply the king's commandments to the flock, but also to themselves. And vigilantly look after their own condition. And as we said before, when they are said to be full of eyes, they are supposed to have a good perception concerning their own internal state and spiritual condition. Let us uh, look at a couple of non-symbolical texts so that we can be sure that we have a good grounding for, for our application here. First, turn with me to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20, verse 28. 
Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. We can, uh, by reading too quickly, miss the exhortation for these elders to take heed to themselves. We can read, skip right over that and go on to the taking heed to all of the flock, which clearly is the chief burden of the whole. But the eyes are supposed to be upon the self as well. They're supposed to take heed to themselves. And what we have here in brief, Paul expresses to young Timothy at greater length. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by Presbytery, with the laying on of the hands of the Presbytery, or given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the Presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. We have here this exhortation given again to uh, young Pastor Timothy, and more than a minister, uh, an evangelist in the Church of God, holding one of those extraordinary offices. He's called upon to take heed to himself, to be watchful over the state of his soul, to examine himself, And not only that, but to take heed unto his doctrine, the things that he has believed and the things that he has taught, which is another part of self-examination. Do I have right thoughts of God? Here we are told just how profitable this exercise in self-examination is. If Timothy is faithful in the doing of this, he will become an instrument of salvation, both for himself and for everybody else. Take heed unto thyself and unto thy doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Of course, we know that only God saves the soul. Only God renews the soul. Only God justifies. Only God sanctifies. Here he's speaking of Timothy as a ministerial instrument in that very thing. So how valuable is it to have officers that are examining themselves? How valuable is your salvation and its progress? We see that very much 
is at stake. Uh, And the reason for this, if we back up a little bit, becomes quite plain. Because by good doctrine, a a good example, he becomes a great help to others. Verse 12, as he examines himself, he says uh, he's going to become an example uh, to the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And a good example is a very valuable thing and useful for bringing the flock along unto maturity. Interestingly enough here, there is no idea that ministers come off the assembly line perfect. But rather, uh, Paul says that the the church will profit by watching him grow. You see, you ought not to look at your officers and think of them as finished products, but profit as you observe them growing. Paul tells him in verse 15 to meditate upon... um, the gifts that have been given to him, reading, exhortation, and doctrine, meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. So Timothy is not only supposed to have attained a certain amount of spiritual maturity, but he is supposed to be growing, and his profiting is going to be a benefit to all because they're going to watch it happen. And profit from it. As I was considering these things, two very happy byproducts of of an officer's self-examination appeared to me. First of all, it's a humbling thing, which becomes all the more necessary the greater his gifts are. C.S. Lewis made an observation, one I hope that, that you will never forget that pride is is a somewhat unique sin in that it becomes all the more dangerous the further along you go in the Christian life. The greater your gifts and graces, the greater the enlargement of them over the course of a life, the greater pride and the the problem of pride can become. Uh, And it's just one small step from... God has done something great for me and in me to am I not something? And it can be a very subtle thing, but one is God glorifying and the other is pride. Man glorifying. But a well-examined life, a man who has examined his heart will know something of the poverty the darkness and the blackness of his own heart. And so he he will find it impossible to attribute anything to himself when he considers the graces given to him. You remember what Paul said, and and the Corinthian Christians, and Paul concedes this point to them, they were superabounding in all sorts of spiritual gifts, even the miraculous ones. And he concedes it, this is true. But pride had also grown up with those gifts. And he says this to them. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? If we see great gifts and graces, whether they be in ourselves or in others, 
Oh, the praise of that belongs to God. And indeed, we might marvel that God can do such great things with such poor material. But the poorness of the material, that's the part that belongs to us. We can take the credit for that part. Poor material. This is a very helpful thing because... um, When you consider the history of the church, old administration or new, uh, whether it be the patristic, the medieval, reformation or the modern period, there has always been a tendency for the officers of the church to lord it over the people. It's always been true. But here this humbling self-examination reminds a minister that he is simply a servant of God among the other servants of God. And it's a very humbling doctrine. A second happy byproduct. It seems to me that if a man has uh, a large experience in dealing with his own heart and his own heart problems, that it will make him a better physician of souls to others. He'll be able to both sympathize with and, um, and treat biblically the problems of others because he'll have known them firsthand. He'll have seen them in himself and will have treated them in himself. But again, always remember that experience is useful only one in one regard, that we have an enlarged biblical experience. We have the experience of a problem and have known something firsthand of how to bring the Bible to bear upon it. Our experiences in and of themselves tend to make us nothing other than uh, proud and bossing. Biblical experience is helpful to us and to others. So if we have these two happy byproducts and that it will produce humble officers and Officers that are better physicians of soul. It avoids one unhappy consequence. There are a few things as irksome as someone whose eyes are all out and none in. Uh, And we probably have all had an experience of Officers whose eyes are fully set upon the congregation and yet strangely blind with respect to themselves. This is not only unpleasant to uh, encounter, but it has a great tendency to make officers proud and censorious and severe. Quick to spot the moat in the eye of another while missing the beam in his own eye. This is one of the Lord Jesus' constant criticisms of the Pharisees. You can see the beam in the eye of, or this moat in the eye of another, but you can't see the beam in your own eye. You strain a gnat with respect to another and swallow the camel yourself. <coughs> blind guides of the blind. Well, we have a uh, call here to the officers of the church to examine themselves. But, uh, of course, in principle, this belongs to everyone, doesn't it? And um, 
I won't enlarge upon it here so very much because we have been talking a good bit about self-examination in our sermons on the assurance of grace and salvation and the relationship of self-examination to assurance. So I won't enlarge upon it, but take these principles and let us become more deeply self-reflective. It will have happy consequences both for the self and for everyone that is around us. And the final use, let the officers of the church be constant in the praise of God. In our text, they are portrayed as ceasing not. Not in the daytime, not in the nighttime. Uh, proclaiming the praises of God, which moves the entire assembly to praise God. This is altogether fitting, for this is the chief end of man to glorify our God in all of the things that we do. But again, I thought it might be useful to look at a couple of non-symbolical texts. So turn with me first to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter four, verses one and two. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Here we have a charge. From Paul to young Timothy, in the holy presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge, that uh, Timothy is to be faithful in his preaching and to be ready for it and to be performing it in all seasons. Uh, sometimes a minister delivers a prepared sermon, something he had time to meditate upon and think about beforehand. He preaches in season, but he's also got to be ready with the word of God out of season at those unexpected times. You study the history of homiletics and preaching, you will find some ministers that were quite meticulous in their preparation. As far as even a specific sermon, Jonathan Edwards liked to write all of his out, every word, because he was always concerned that he would forget something. And so he was very full in his preparation for a particular sermon. Others have uh, made something of a rough outline or sketch and have felt completely free to uh, lean more upon their general preparation for preaching as time and occasion seemed to dictate to him. Spurgeon thought it to be a good thing that ministers prepare, but be so prepared in their general studies that if he saw occasion, he could simply lay his sermon by, the prepared one, and preach to the emergent circumstance of the, of the congregation. A high level of preparation indeed. 
But my point in uh, saying this is you see that Paul tells him to be ready and to be about the business at all times, whether it be in season or out of season. You preach the word. And uh, we have in Acts chapter 20, if you'll turn back there with me, Paul gives us uh, some insight into his own ministerial behavior. So we have Paul's own testimony concerning his ministerial behavior. And what we find is that he was a man constant in preaching, constant in the declaration of um, the gospel of the glorious God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 18. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, and you remember he's at Miletus and he's called the elders of Ephesus to him as he prepares to go to Jerusalem, knowing that he will not see them again. Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. So Paul is going to tell us something about his constant behavior. This is what I was like in your midst all of the time, at all seasons. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. So here we we find uh, Paul very much as he said to Timothy, taking every opportunity to teach, to preach, and to proclaim the glory of God, because he said that he kept nothing back, which refers to content, and then he tells you, but in order to deliver it all, I taught you publicly and from house to house. So he was always about this business constantly, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we're given the subject matter which he was constantly declaring, which is that God-glorifying gospel. Repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go in the Spirit unto... I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. So once again, you get a constant subject matter. The gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Now we learn something more about, um, this is quite useful. Uh, Paul has been telling us constantly, publicly, every place, Every place I had an opportunity, I have been declaring to you the gospel. Now, frequently when you hear uh, uh, 
Christians of a certain reductionistic mindset, when you begin to get into some other doctrines, they will say things like, oh, that's not important. We only need the gospel. But Paul seems to see his gospel connected very much to the whole counsel of God. So he said, I declare not only to you those things that most immediately pertain to your salvation, but all of their adjuncts as well. The whole counsel of God, all of the things that are attached to them. And you have frequently heard me say that um, uh, we learn Bible doctrine rightly when we see the connection of every Bible doctrine to Christ and the gospel. Because they are all connected to Christ and the gospel. So if we uh, do our doctrine of the church, but it somehow becomes disjoined from faith and repentance and the Lord Jesus Christ the mediator we've not done the doctrine of the church as we ought and all of the doctrines of the Bible are like that so we have an unnecessary dichotomy in the minds of most people we can talk about the gospel or we can talk about the form of church government but we can't talk about both the form of church government is very much connected with the gospel and with Jesus Christ, his kingship, his high priestly ministry in our midst, and his worship, his prophetic voice in our midst, all of this has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. The whole counsel of God. Verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So you see his constant method. Now this warning is not a different thing than the gospel or the whole counsel of God, but he's warning them so that when these false teachers arise, as it had been prophesied, read Revelation chapter 2. They did show up, as Paul prophesied. Uh, the um, flock would be preserved in the gospel, having been thus warned. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. What's Paul's subject matter? The whole counsel of God as it's related to the gospel. And what's his method or manner? All the time. And at every place I get an opportunity. In season and out of season. This looks very much like our living creatures, doesn't it? Constant in the declaration of God's glory. And so here we have an exhortation to the officers of the church to be constant in the declaration of God's glory so that others might be moved to worship. But um, this has uh, an application to all of us as well. It does imply a reciprocal duty. If it is the duty of the officers of the church by the declaration of God's glory to call the church to worship, 
the implied reciprocal duty is that the church then responds in the worship of God. But also, there is a more immediate application in the sense that all of our mouths ought to be filled with God's glory, calling other people to worship and praise Him, for He is worthy. Let us pray together.